many of us ever know what it is to become the perfect version of ourselves? This is Decoding Superhuman with your host, Boomer Anderson. Superhuman Nation, it's Boomer Anderson, and I just got back from this amazing conference in Riga, Latvia. But you know what else is amazing? Our podcast guest today had an absolutely amazing conversation with him. And you know that I am obsessed with this concept of building stress resilience, with becoming anti-fragile. And so having today's guest on was an absolute pleasure. It's rare that I read the same performance book more than once. Performance books like business books often give you the main idea within a few sentences. But this book, or the author of this book, has done such a good job that I go back to the book over and over again. The book is The Oxygen Advantage, and our guest today is Patrick McCowan. And The Oxygen Advantage has been published in 14 different languages. It combines the simulation of high-altitude training and specifically formulated exercises, which empower readers to improve their corporate and exercise performance. That is the bulk of our conversation on today's podcast, so you're going to want to stay tuned. For the first time, individuals are afforded a reliable and accurate means to measure their progress using the Body Oxygen Level Test, or BOLT score. This enables them to address poor breathing habits, understand in simple terms how oxygen is released into working muscles, and to practice breath hold exercises that naturally increase anaerobic and aerobic capacity. So what did Patrick and I get into on this podcast? We talk about the breath and why the breath is important. We talk about what a good breath or optimal breath looks like. We talk, of course, about the Bolt score. So if you're interested in what the Bolt score is, I encourage you to tune in and listen very carefully. And then we talk about practical implications of this, specifically how you can use your breath work to overcome fears of public speaking or enhance your athletic performance, including increasing erythropoietin. Yes, you've heard that before in a different context, but increasing erythropoietin naturally. I'm so excited for this episode that I just want you guys to listen. But the show notes for this one are decodingsuperhuman.com slash oxygen advantage. You're going to want to check out those show notes because there's lots of good resources in there. Enjoy my episode with the one, the only Patrick McCowan. All right, the sponsor for today's podcast is a member of the toolkit that I use on an almost daily basis to upgrade my state of being and have used it actually for the past couple of years. The guys over at Neurohacker Collective have done a fantastic job. You've heard me rave about the original stack as well as quality of mind on the show. But now I'm so excited because the suite of products has grown. You have quality of focus for that near term bump. You have quality of mind caffeine free for all my caffeine sensitive listeners out there. But their latest product, which just came out, is oh so exciting. It's called Eternus, and it's a 38-ingredient formula containing the most researched and premium ingredients on Earth for supporting cellular health. This is key to combating the symptoms of aging. If you want to check out Eternus, Qualia Mind, Focus, or any of the Neurohacker products, go over to neurohacker.com and plug in the code BOOMER you'll get an additional 15% off your order. Enjoy.
Patrick, this is an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming on the show. You're, you're very welcome, Boomer. Thanks for bringing me along. So Patrick, before we get into the main purpose of today's show, which is really using the breath in, in different ways to construct performance, mm-hmm. you mentioned in the book, and the oxygen advantage of the book that I'm referring to, is you had a corporate background as well. Do you mind going into that a little bit? Sure. Um, I had a something, you know, in terms of when I was going through school, I had a, a penchant towards business subjects and I was doing pretty well at them and I wasn't doing so well at the science subjects. So the subjects that I were doing well in ended up being the focus of my degree. And I went to a university in Dublin called Trinity College Dublin. I did a degree, it's called Business, Economic and Social Studies. And I graduated in 1997. I entered the corporate world and I was in middle management, a young 22, 23 year old in charge of say five or six employees. And we expanded a branch from Dublin to Galway. And the company was called Enterprise Rent-A-Car. And they basically provide um, insurance rentals when you have a car accident. So they're replacement cars. And there was a number of things that got me out of the corporate world. And one was my own health background. And this is a health background that, you know, growing up as a kid, I had asthma. And if you have asthma, you tend to have a stuffy nose. And if you have a stuffy nose, you tend to breathe through an open mouth. And if you have a stuffy nose, your sleep is affected. So people with nasal congestion, um, regardless of asthma or not, they're 1.8 times likely to have a sleep problem. So my concentration as a result was affected. Because if your sleep is off, your concentration is off. And because I was a mouth breather, I was in that constant fight or flight response. So here growing up as a teenager, I was tired and I was highly strong. And we're supposed to go to school and concentrate on subjects. And for me to attain grades, I had to give twice, two times the length of study as my peers. And that happened all the way through university. And I got my degree, but it took a lot of work. And that's the one thing that I'll say is that doctors and healthcare professionals seldom look at breathing, you know, and Even in the literature, it's very difficult to know the incidence of mouth breathing in the adult population. We know in children, it's as high as 50%. And we know in children, it's very much directed to poor sleep, ADHD, poor concentration. And children with sleep problems have 10 times the risk of learning difficulties. 10 times, not once, not twice. Now, many of your listeners will wake up with a dry mouth in the morning. Those individuals who wake up with a dry mouth are unlikely to feel refreshed. And if your sleep isn't right, your day isn't right. So I was in the corporate world and then I kind of knew something was off because my medication was increasing and I was getting no better. Um, And I read a newspaper article back in 1998 and it was about the importance of breathing through the nose. It was about the the work of a Russian doctor called Konstantin Buteko. He said two things. He said, your breathing should be light. You know, when you look at somebody's breathing, it should be barely imperceptible during rest. It should be barely noticeable. And he said, it should be in and out from my nose. My breathing was the opposite. So I started switching from mouth to nose breathing. And within a few days, my sleep improved dramatically. So I was waking up feeling alert. And it was a couple of years later, you know, that I decided I felt just an intuition that I had to get out of the corporate world. Number one is I didn't like it. Um, It wasn't for me, you know, and I think really sometimes we have to follow our passions. It was easier for me back then. I was a a guy in my young 20s, in my early 20s, but there's always, there's always pros and cons. You know, when you're leaving a corporate world to go out on your own back in your early 20s, number one is you don't have experience, which is a con. But maybe it's, it's a pro in some ways as well, because you're totally naive to what you're going to experience when you're working for yourself. 
And number two is another pro was that I had no mortgage, no car, no nothing, and wasn't married. So I was free to lose time. And, you know, I went into a business that didn't take very much capital investment, so I could do that. But I found it, I found what I love to do. And that was the difference. And for me, you know, putting this into practice, and I put it into practice for my own sleep, for my own stress levels, giving presentations. I travel around the world a lot. On Monday, I flew in from Ohio. Last week, I was in Berlin. And I have about 25 trips per year, and each trip is about a week or more. So you can kind of give you an idea that at least 50% of my time is outside of Ireland. So you're always on the road. And there's so many things that you mentioned there that I want to drill down on in this conversation. Okay. Everything from speaking to improving sleep, etc. Yeah. But I think just foundationally, it's, it's good to start with the breath. Yes. And really the importance of the breath. Because as you said before, and I still don't think it's mainstream, it is getting attention, but the breath is very important. Do you mind going into why? The breath, the, through the breath, um, you're able to influence blood circulation. You're also able to directly influence the release of oxygen that's delivered from the blood to the cells. You're able to help open up your airways. Your sleep and your anxiety and stress levels are also influenced by the breath. But here's the thing. Many people, when they're teaching breathing exercises, they don't know basic physiology. They shouldn't be teaching breathing exercises because what they are teaching is not correct. And when we have normal breathing, our blood oxygen saturation is already almost 100%. And we can measure that using pulse oximetry. So this little device here, it's got a red light and an infrared light, and it's able to detect how fully loaded is hemoglobin with oxygen. As we sit here, our blood oxygen saturation is almost fully saturated. Now, if I start breathing hard, I'm not going to add any more oxygen to the hemoglobin. Because if you pour water into a glass that's already full of water, you're not going to increase the amount of water in the glass. I'm not concerned with the amount of oxygen in the blood. I'm concerned with how do we get the oxygen from the blood to the cells. I see people with burnout syndrome, exhaustion syndrome. There was a very good paper that was written, published in Sweden. And it was looking at corporate burnout is one of the biggest causes of absenteeism, long-term absenteeism. And here's where employees are under so much stress that eventually the body says, I've had enough and it shuts down. And it was the first time this was investigated, but they looked at hyperventilation. It was 100%. So every single subject who were suffering from corporate burnout and exhaustion, they were hyperventilators. Now, what does that mean? Well, basically that means that the stress, during a stressful time, your breathing gets faster and harder. And it's normal for stress and anxiety to change breathing patterns. But the human body, if we if we are exposed to you know a stimulus for a period of time, even when the stimulus is removed, the behavior is maintained. So here you can imagine, you know, an employee in the corporate world, and they're under stress for one or two years, and that's long-term stress. And we we aren't built to cope with that. Throughout our evolution, we only had short-term stresses. The animal world, very few animals on this earth, unless they are under the care of human beings. They don't experience long-term stress. All animals in their natural environment have short-term stresses, and that's what we had. So we can cope with that because we've evolved to cope with that. Long-term stress is one or two years. Our breathing patterns change. And even when you leave the corporate world, or even when you leave the stressful environment, your breathing pattern will continue, and it will keep you stuck in that pattern. And that's why it's very important to change breathing patterns towards normal. So I'm not saying about this new fad breathing technique. All I'm saying is about 
getting back to basics. And when we were born, we were born breathing in and out through the nose. The entire animal kingdom, with the exception of a dog and a couple of diving birds, are nasal breathers. Our ancestors were all nasal breathers, and we know that by the shape of the face. Because when you have the mouth closed and your tongue is resting in the roof of the mouth, it helps to maintain a wide upper jaw at the maxilla. And as a result, nose breathers with correct tongue posture will tend to have straighter teeth. And conversely, mouth breathers, because tongue posture is low, and because of the pressures exerted by the cheeks and lips against the jaws, the jaws become narrow, V-shaped, and teeth are overcrowded. So all mouth breathers during childhood develop crooked teeth and craniofacial abnormalities different from their nasal breathing counterparts. So here's my point. When we're looking at breathing, I'm looking at the effects that modern living is having on breathing patterns and how to bring this back towards normal. Like Boomer, we're not living in natural times. At the moment, we're talking. We're not doing any physical exercise. Can you think of somebody who's talking all day? They're sitting on a chair. You know, they're under stress. They're in stuffy environments. They're eating the wrong foods. They're stressed when they go, and then they're exposing themselves to blue light before they go to sleep. And all of these things are having a negative impact. Our ancestors, and this is even my own father and mother, and their father and mother, their lives were very much different to, to our lives. They were doing physical labor. You know, they were working out in the fields. They were working, you know, physically. And they were eating more natural foods. And they weren't under the competitive stresses that we are under today. You know, we, we have to, to look at the effects that modern life has brought a lot of comforts. But there are some disadvantages in that. And even with you know, the influence of information technology. While it's brought many advantages, it's also brought some disadvantages, especially in terms of mental health. And the one thing that we have that's constant, for the past two and a half thousand years, we have been following the breath. And now it's time to, to go back to that because it's helping to keep us grounded. But also, we have to ask the question, how should we breed? And that's a question that I'm going to ask you here in a few seconds. But I want to first... Uh, talk a little bit about the evaluation of where somebody is at with their breathing. And one of the things you mention and come back to in the book is the Bolt score. And, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but do you mind just going into that and sort of how that's a framework for somebody who's listening to this right now who may say, well, I think I breathe okay, but how do I actually know? Your, your Bolt score is the measurement of comfortable breath all time following an exhalation. You take a normal breath in through your nose, a normal breath out through your nose, and you pinch your nose with your fingers, and you time it in seconds. How long does it take until you feel the first involuntary movement or urges to breathe? So you have to think of it this way. If you breathe in and out through your nose and then you hold your breath, at some point your brain is gonna say, breathe, because it's the respiratory center in the brain, that's monitoring blood gases. And the primary stimulus to breathe is carbon dioxide, not oxygen. So as you hold your breath, carbon dioxide is accumulating in the blood because it's not leaving the blood through the lungs. And as a result, when CO2, carbon dioxide is accumulating in the blood, the respiratory center in the brain is noticing and monitoring the accumulation of CO2. And when CO2 increases just by a small amount, the respiratory center in the brain will send a stimulus to breathe. So you'll feel maybe your diaphragm will contract or the intercostal muscles are moving out. Or you might even feel it in your throat because the muscles in your throat, there's a subset of breathing muscles in your throat that are activated or 
that are influenced too by the diaphragm. So your bowl score is the length of comfortable breath hold time and functional breathing is above 25 seconds. Dysfunctional and abnormal breathing patterns is less than 25 seconds. Now at the weekend, I spoke in Ohio and I spoke with sleep doctors, um, sleep dentists. So we had about 21, 20 more, 22 professionals. And we had a number of medical doctors. And there I was talking about breathing re-education for sleep because sleep now has really changed in terms of, say, sleep apnea. And one of the phenotypes of sleep apnea is called loop gain. And loop gain is your sensitivity to the buildup of CO2. And about 30% of people with sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea, have high loop gain. But that can be measured by bowl score. Because if you have got a low bowl score, your breathing tends to be abnormal. And if your breathing is abnormal during the day, your breathing is abnormal during your sleep. And when we're looking at sleep, we can't just be isolated to the airways. We also need to look at flow. If you have an individual who's breathing hard and fast and using his upper chest or her upper chest and breathing through an open mouth, that person is more at risk of sleep disorders. And a sleep disorder would be even snoring or obstructive sleep apnea. So, but originally the bolt score was, you know, it was determined to measure the onset and endurance of breathlessness. So we use it with athletes, we use it for sleep, but we also use it for panic disorders because individuals who have, say, who are prone to panic disorders, they have a very strong feeling of or aversion to suffocation. And I use it as a measurement of resilience because really what it's, it's measuring is it's measuring your chemosensitivity to the gas, to the accumulation of the gas carbon dioxide. And if you have a strong sensitivity to the accumulation of CO2, your breathing tends to be harder. And if your breathing is harder, the mind is more likely to be agitated, your sleep is affected, and you've got increased breathlessness during physical exercise. Now, just when it's in my mind, in terms of agitation of the mind, we have to look at how stress and anxiety impact breathing. And if I look at the breathing of somebody prone to panic disorder, they breathe faster and upper chest and irregular breathing. It's not just that the stress and anxiety and panic disorder feed into breathing patterns, but it's the person's breathing patterns which are feeding back into anxiety, stress, and panic disorder. So there's a feedback loop there. And if you look at the research, you know, it is true the instruction to take a deep breath is actually correct, but a deep breath just means you're using your diaphragm. A deep breath doesn't equal a big breath. And Stanford researchers in March of 2017, if you Google Stanford Medical School and slow, slow breathing, they identified a new structure in the brain in the locus corollis. And they said, this structure in the brain is spying on your breathing. And if you breathe fast, this structure will relay signals of agitation to the rest of the brain. And if you breathe slowly, this structure will relay signals of calm to the rest of the brain. When I look at people coming in with anxiety, and we've had a lot I've written a couple of books on anxiety. Um, I've had thousands of people coming in, primarily with panic disorder, um, anxiety, stress, depression. And I look at their breathing, and their breathing patterns are generally are abnormal. Because in this population, we know from the literature that up to 70% of people with anxiety have abnormal breathing. Now, and I often ask these people, as your doctor, I asked them, how do you wake up in the morning? And they said, I wake up exhausted. And I say, has your doctor ever asked you about your sleep? No, because there's a commonality of symptoms here. If you have poor sleep, you'll have irritability, you'll have cognitive dysfunction, and you'll have poor concentration and fatigue. But also if you're prone to anxiety and depression, you have irritability, you have cognitive dysfunction, you're prone to fatigue and you have poor concentration. So it's difficult to, for the doctor to know where are the, what's causing these symptoms. Is it their sleep? 
or is it their anxiety and depression? But these people with anxiety and depression, panic disorder, they go and they do go to their counselor. They do cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, they do whatever psychological um, modalities are imparted to the client. So the professional that's working with them is looking at everything except two major things. They're missing out on their sleep and they are missing out on their breathing. And these are two simple things that you could impart that you don't, have, you don't need the client to keep coming back over and over and over. If I'm working with clients, I don't want clients coming back over and over to me. I don't have the time as number one, but I want the client, I want the student coming into me to take this information and to apply it for their own lives. So, you know, they, they are in control. Um, it doesn't make sense to me to be keep bringing people back. I want to give them as much information as I can, give them the practical tools in a short space of time. And the beauty about this is if you put it into practice, you make progress pretty quickly. I would generally expect sleep to improve quite significantly within two to three days, breathing and also a sense of calm. And that's the beauty about that. And it, it comes back to the question, how should we breathe? We're going to get into this question because you, you continue to, you brought it up, but also on, on some of the points you made about people with anxiety, stress, they tend to breathe faster. And is it a matter of just slowing it down? Because if you're just slowing it down, is there other factors at work here? Meaning, you know, do you mind touching a little bit on nitric oxide in particular? Yeah. Um, so if we have somebody coming in with stress and anxiety, I have to be careful working with them because they have an aversion of air hunger. And this feeling of suffocation can put them into the fear response. Um, somebody with panic disorder, every time they've had a panic attack, they're really feeling suffocated. And their brain is conditioned to associate the feeling of suffocation with panic. But when I'm changing breathing patterns, and this is the one thing that differentiates this breathing technique from any other technique that I'm familiar with, we want people to gently slow down their breathing. Let's do it. So what I'd like is your listeners or your viewers to follow the airflow that's coming in and out of their nose and to really concentrate on the slightly colder air coming into the nose and the warmer air leaving the nose. So first to bring their attention onto their breathing. And then as they're feeling their breathing is to gently slow down the speed of the breath. So they're really focusing on slowing down the speed of the air coming into the nose and then having a really relaxed and slow, gentle breath out. And at this point, if they continue really focusing on slowing down the speed of air as it enters the nostrils and having a very relaxed, gentle breath out, their breathing volume now will be less than what it was before they started. So they feel air hunger. And air hunger is telling you that carbon dioxide is accumulated in the blood just by a little amount because the primary stimulus to breathe is carbon dioxide. But as carbon dioxide accumulates in the blood, it opens up blood vessels and individuals start to notice that they feel warmer. So here you have 100,000 miles of blood vessels throughout the body. And by slowing down the breath to the point of a tolerable air hunger, you're able to improve your blood circulation. Your fingers internally feel warmer. And it's not just your peripheries, it's not just the fingers, the hands that are getting increased blood flow, but it's also the brain. Because carbon dioxide is a dilator, a vasodilator of blood, blood flow. Now, if you have somebody with anxiety and stress, or even just going in to make a presentation, you know, going in to do a job interview, and you're outside the room, you're outside the door, you're waiting to be called, and there's that period of anticipation, and your breathing is that little bit faster and labored. And with faster and labored breathing, you're getting rid of too much carbon dioxide from the blood. And as a result, blood flow to the brain is reduced. 
So you're going into an interview, but you're not having as much blood flow going to your brain because the anticipation, the stress, the anxiety has constricted your blood vessels. So it's a really, you know, it's a really important thing that we have to look at is the stress years ago, thousand years ago, 500 years ago, if we were under stress, our breathing gets faster and harder. But this was, you know, to increase our breathing, to bring more oxygen in because we were going to be utilizing that oxygen because we were either going to fight or we were going to flight. We're going to run away. But nowadays we are breathing harder in anticipation of physical exercise, but there's no physical exercise. And the problem here is that it's disturbing blood gases and it's reducing oxygen delivery and blood flow. So there's simple tools that we can give you there, but coming back to slowing down the breath, and I will talk about nitric oxide. When you're slowing down the breath, I want people to slow down their breathing by focusing on the area just inside their nose and gently slowing down the speed of the breath in. And at the top of the breath, they're having a really relaxed and gentle breath out. The length of the breath out should be about one and a half times the size of the breath in. And I want people to feel that they are not getting enough air, not to the point it causes stress, but to the point that they feel, yes, I'd like to take in a deeper breath, but I feel all right about it. The other thing that they will notice is increased watery saliva in the mouth. So, and the other thing, the third thing before I forget about it is that they can feel drowsy. So when you slow down your breathing, you're able to, you're able to influence the autonomic nervous system. Yogis for thousands of years have known about when you activate the body's relaxation response, the parasympathetic response, you do have increased watery saliva accumulating in the mouth. And conversely, when we get stressed, we have a dry mouth. But I was reading a, an interesting book it's called The Intention Experiment by Lynn McTaggart. And in that book, she spoke about a surgeon in Spain doing a lot of operations without um, anesthetic. He was using hypnosis. But the one requirement he wanted for his patients was that they had increased watery saliva in the mouth. And I think this is very important. We know that when the body gets into relaxation, there is increased watery saliva in the mouth. But maybe also, increased watery saliva in the mouth is a signal to the body that you're in a relaxed state. This is where nose and mouth breathing comes in. Because when we have the mouth open, our mouth is dry. When we sleep with an open mouth, our mouth is dry. And mouth breathing is sympathetic activation, stress activation. And we need sleep for rest and recovery. And if we have a breathing pattern disorder, and we're more likely stuck in that fight or flight, or we have narrowing of the airways, or collapse of the airways causing sleep apnea, the body is, is going into that stressful mode. And there's very little sleep very little recovery, the quality of sleep is poor. So another thing, um, nitric oxide, as you talked about, when we look at the nasal cavity, and what your viewers can do is, I don't have a model, an anatomical model of my nose, but I usually carry one around me, but is to put your tongue into the roof of the mat and to drag your tongue all the way along the roof of the mat. So you feel the extent, what you're doing is you're feeling the roof of the mat with the tongue, you're feeling the hard palate, and bring your tongue right back until you feel the soft palate. The roof of the mouth is the floor of the nose. The nose that we look at when we look at our face in the mirror is only about 20% of the nose. 80% of the nasal cavity is going well back within the skull. So if you were to open your mouth and look up into the vault, into the roof of the mouth, you know sitting above that is your nasal cavity. And within that there's turbinates, and these are spongy structures designed to, to condition moist and regulate volume and, you know, and make sure that flow is correct. But within that, there's a gas called nit nitric oxide that's secreted or released into the nasal cavity from the paranasal sinuses, but also produced in the nasal cavity. 
A nitric oxide is a vasodilator. Now, we're not entirely sure the, the life length of nitric oxide. Um, it may be just a few seconds. So we know most certainly that nitric oxide plays a huge role in ventilation perfusion. And I'll keep this very simple. We're standing upright, and as a result, the greatest concentration of blood when we're upright is in the lower lobes of the lungs. But if we breathe through the mouth, if you take a breath through your mouth there, if you look down at your chest when you take that breath, so take a breath through the mouth and look at your chest. So you will see that mouth breathing is causing chest breathing. So mouth breathing is bringing more air into the upper part of the lungs, but the greatest concentration of blood is in the lower part. So here we have what would be called a ventilation perfusion mismatch. If you breathe through your nose, you carry nitric oxide, and nitric oxide, as it arrives into the lungs, helps to distrib distribute the blood from the lower lobes of the lungs to the upper. But nasal breathing also activates the diaphragm. Diaphragmatic breathing is very important for massaging the internal organs, but also for the mind. It is true that when we get stressed, we breathe using the upper chest. But when we breathe using the upper chest, it's feeding back into stress. So a diaphragmatic breath can only and really be achieved. Now, I'm not saying that you can't breathe diaphragmatically by breathing through the mouth. But what I am saying is that if you, have, if you are mouth breathing, you have a greater tendency to have activation of the upper chest. So mouth breathing is fast breathing, hard breathing, and upper chest breathing. And this is causing anxiety and stress. Conversely, nose breathing, by carrying nitric oxide into the lower parts of the lungs and helping to redistribute the blood, and also by dilating the blood vessels in the lungs, by sterilizing the air, by opening up the airways, nose breathing as it harnesses nasal nitric oxide improves oxygen uptake in the blood. This is the concentration, the PO2. And Swift, back in 1988, um, he discovered that, the, the researchers discovered there that the oxygen uptake, the PO2, now which is different to the SpO2, and I probably won't go into it because it's going too much down a rabbit hole, but the PO2 increases by about 10%. So it's fundamentally, the, the advantage of nasal breathing, there is absolutely no comparison to mouth breathing. And yet, if you sit in a cafe in Amsterdam or in any European city, and you look out on the street, and you look at the people walking by, and how many people are walking by with their mouths open? And they're just doing light, light, light physical exercise, and you see their lips apart. We know that individuals over 40 years of age are six times more likely to breathe through an open mouth, six times. And people might say to you, well, I never have my mouth open. Well, do you, do you wake up with that dry mouth in the morning? Because if you're waking up with the, with the dry mouth in the morning, it's likely that your concentration is affected. It's never 100%, you know, because genetics also will play a role here and fitness levels, but generally it can impart that disadvantage. This is fantastic. And I'm enjoying breathing at this cadence right now. That's for sure. Patrick, in terms of breathing right, you mentioned a cadence of inhale slightly shorter than the exhale. Uh, what else are the attributes of breathing right? A, a perfect cadence would be an inhalation for four seconds and an exhalation for six seconds. It's a perfect cadence, six breaths per minute, for helping to restore normal autonomic functioning. And in terms of autonomic functioning, we have receptors in the larger blood vessels. And these receptors or baroreceptors are monitoring your blood pressure. If blood pressure increases, these receptors will send a message to the brain. And the brain will instantly send a message to your blood vessels to open up and your heart rate slow down so that your blood pressure normalizes. 
Conversely, if your blood pressure goes low, these receptors will send a message to the brain and the brain will cause your blood vessels to constrict and your heart rate to speed up so that your blood pressure normalizes. And this is a great measure of resilience. It's a measure of resilience in that how do we react to stress? But also when the stress diminishes, do we return back to normal? We're all going to have stress. That's normal. And we've always had stress. You know, we've always had those short-term stresses. We've always been exposed to, to stressors throughout evolution. And the human body has made adaptations as a result of it. The resilience of the individual is how quick can their operating systems return to normal? And there's a lot of research showing that people say with chronic fatigue, exhaustion, fibromyalgia, sleep problems, anxiety, depression, that they have poor functioning of the baroreceptors. Now, how do you stimulate these baroreceptors? You stimulate them with a cadence of four seconds in and six seconds out with light, deep breathing. So the mantra we use is slow, but light, but deep. So as a person breathes in, I want their diaphragm movement. So basically, they're taking a breath of air down into the depths of the lungs, but it's very light, so you shouldn't hear it. As you breathe in, your diaphragm is, distend is moving downwards. Your intercostal muscles are moving out. So generally, as you have an inspiration, your tummy will move outwards a little bit. And your size, you'll have some lateral expansion. And conversely, when you have an expiration, your tummy will move back in. Your sides will move back in. So it's breathe in, tummy gently outwards, and breathe out, tummy gently in. And we, we never push it and pull it. But we want the chest movements to be about, say, no more than 20% during rest. And we want 80% of the work to be driven by the diaphragm. So we want slow, but light, but deep breathing, ideally with a slight air hunger to a cadence of six breaths per minute. And if you were to practice that, say, even 10, 20 minutes throughout the day, um, that would be very good at stimulating the baroreceptors to improve resilience. And also, you know, with athletic ability, there's a link between functioning of the baroreceptors and chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide. So people with a lower breath hold time, they have a stronger chemosensitivity to the buildup of CO2. That also is influenced by your, by your breathing. So on a number of levels, with, with doing breathe light exercise, we can help to combat or to counteract the negative effects that stress is having in our life. Look into the corporate world. Look at the amount of individuals when we had the financial crash here. The individuals who got sick here, I've seen people develop cancer. I've seen people with high blood pressure, people with heart attacks. And these people were in their 60s. You know, and it couldn't be just a coincidence that these things happened because of this. It definitely has to be some link here. And if I talk to medical doctors, even at the weekend, we had a Harvard doctor with us at the course. And we were talking about stress that came out because this will always come out. And I believe that you can have a dreadful lifestyle. You know, you could do no physical exercise. You could be eating the wrong type of foods, but that's not as harmful as stress. Stress is the killer. And Herbert Benson, he spoke about this back in 1975 when he wrote his book, The Relaxation Response. And he said that stress makes people sick. And on the basis that stress makes people sick, we want to help restore normal autonomic functioning. And we're doing it through the breath because we can influence the functioning of the body that's outside of our voluntary control, but we can influence it through breathing. It's not about taking the big breaths. If you take big breaths, 30 big breaths in and out, that's a stressor. So that's a stress response. 
Now there's some benefits to it, but in terms of, I'm more concerned with your everyday functional breathing. I'm concerned with the breathing of the individual when they're asleep. I'm concerned with the breathing of the individual when they're walking down the street, when they're going to do a presentation, when they're giving the presentation. In other words, they're everyday breathing patterns and we can influence that by practicing these breathing exercises. This is amazing, Patrick. Do you mind if we, we go into some of the different exercises? Because, and I want to domain these out a little bit because there's some things that you cover in the book in the realm of performance that are very interesting. But I also want to talk about uh, anxiety breathing in particular. Do you mind if we go down the, the, a very common question that we get is, how do I resolve a fear of public speaking? I forget what rank it is on the number of fears, but it's pretty high. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is something that, you know, I do myself for a living. And some of the times I'm talking to, to large groups, 500 people and 500 medical doctors, for example, 500 healthcare professionals. And it can be, you know, a little bit, a little bit nervous beforehand. You're, it's your everyday breathing that's going to influence your nervousness before the activity. The time to start doing breathing exercises is not when you're just about to jump on stage. Well, you can do it then, but the real time is to do it now. Start bringing this into your everyday way of life and even by focusing on the, on the breath. So if you think of the agitation of the mind, people don't have control of their thought processes. Can you stop thinking? And how long can you stop thinking for? Do we have control of the mind or does the mind have control of us? And concentration, and focus is your ability to hold your attention on a subject for a period of time without distraction. So if you're doing an excellent piece of quality work, you need utmost concentration. And I give you an example that I used in the book. I was doing, as I said, business in TCD, and I was joined by a colleague of mine. His name is Terry Clune, and he didn't do it. He didn't do a stroke. We had an exam in about 20 minutes and he didn't open one book. I spent three months studying for this exam and he came into the library. And I was doing a quick kind of refresh, refreshing, always what I would do before an exam. And he says, Paddy, he says, do you have notes there? And I said, I do. And I handed them to him, to him. And I remember him looking at my notes and folding each page over. And he had an intense concentration because I would be looking at my notes, but my attention wouldn't be on the notes. My attention was stuck on my head. But I know he was looking. I knew he was looking at the notes, but I knew his focus and concentration was on the notes. He was absorbing the information. Whereas with me, I'd be looking at it. And once I read down to, to the bottom of the page, I wouldn't remember the contents and I'd have to reread it again or reread it again. And this is concentration and focus. And this is absolutely vitally important. But in any event, the two of us went off and did the exam. The results came out and he got the same grade as me. He did it in 20 minutes. And for me, it took three months. Now, the same individual, the reason that he didn't open the book he was setting up a business called taxpack.com and he set up that business when he was in his early 20s and then he set up a business later, transferred mate. But his estimated worth is about 500 million euro. So he's about the 50th richest person in Ireland. Um, you know, he, he, that's not a fluke. That's not a coincidence. And that could have been predicted back then. All people who make major achievements in their life, regardless of the discipline that they are undertaking in, have control over their mind. I didn't have control. My mind was always agitated. And here's the thing, social media, text messaging, emails, all of these 
are causing the brain to be distracted and more training the brain to be distracted. And the brain is becoming very agitated. And it's estimated that we have about 70,000 thoughts every day. And 95% of these thoughts are repetitive and useless. They're often negative. They're often, you know, critical. Um, and they're the same things over and over. So my point is this. We want to have focus. You want to have focus. And I want to be able to control my mind going into any interview or presentation. How do I do that? I'm making a habit during the day of focusing on my breathing because it's by focusing on my breathing, I'm training my brain to be concentrated. And the best test of your concentration is focus on your breath, not think about it. It's not to think, oh, there's my breath coming in and there's my breath going out because that's just mental activity following your breathing. It's to bring your entire concentration onto the breath. It's to merge with your breath. It's to feel the airflow coming into the nose and it's to feel the airflow leaving the nose and to feel the airflow coming in and to feel the airflow leaving. How long can you do that before the mind wanders? That's a measure of your concentration. And Microsoft, back in 2002, if you Google Microsoft Goldfish Study, and you've probably heard about it, I'm sure it's come up in your podcasts, they measured the attention span of Western person. And they found in 2002 it was 12 seconds. And they did a similar study. I, th I think it was across 3,000 people in Canada. And they found in either 2012 or 2013 that the attention span has reduced from 12 seconds to 8 seconds. And they said this is a problem because a goldfish has an attention span of 9 seconds. An attention span is our ability to focus. But there is an inverse relationship between your ability to focus and agitation of the mind. If your concentration is reducing, agitation of the mind is increasing. If agitation of the mind is increasing, stress, anxiety is increasing. So people who are stressed and anxious and people who are depressed, the problem is that we have lost control of the ability to stop thinking. It's almost that we are depressed with thought. We need to get out of our head. It's absolutely insane. And the human mind is mad. It's mad. We really need to get out of our head and to give our mind a rest. And the best way, well, there's other ways to do it. Traditionally, we would have done it through prayer. You know, somebody goes to church and they say a prayer. And they say, if you're a Catholic, they say the rosary or whatever. And that gives the mind some resolve because you're not worrying about your problems during that time. You're bringing a mantra into your life. So there's, there are ways to do it, but certainly focusing on the breath from a psychological point of view, just by focusing on your breath in and out of your nose, by taking attention out of the mind and into the body and onto the breath, you're helping to develop a muscle in the brain. And that muscle is a part of the brain. I can't give you the technical aspects of it because I don't know. I haven't studied it. You know, I don't know much about it. I can only talk to you about a practical experience. So if I'm having um, a presentation or if I'm having, you know, something coming up that's really because I can be talking off the cuff for two hours off the cuff um, I don't like prep PowerPoint presentations if I can avoid them I, I will absolutely avoid them at all cost as somebody said you shouldn't have something brighter than yourself up on stage I want to have the attention because I can hold people I can hold the attention of people better when I'm speaking to them eye to eye contact as opposed to them looking up at this big light up on, on screen so 
how do we deal with it? Well, by focusing on our breath every day, we're helping to develop a part of the brain that when we need to tap into it, I can bring my attention there and I can hold my attention there. Now, this could be neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is that new neural pathways form as a result of behavioral patterns. So by focusing on our breath, another thing that happens is the, the amygdala, which is responsible for the fight or flight, that shrinks. Now, how long does it take? Six to eight weeks. So six to eight weeks, the amygdala shrinks. Your ability to handle stress improves. And this was by focusing on your breathing for a half an hour per day. And when individuals were put to the Stroop test, the Stroop test is a measure of psychological performance. It was developed back in the 1930s. And it consists of 120 words of color. So say, for instance, you have the color green, but the words or the letters are in red. So you have G-R-E-E-N as letters, but they're colored red. And your task is within two minutes is to name the color of the word, but not the word itself. And, you, you know, it's a stressful test. Individuals who focus on their breath perform better. They have fewer mistakes because they're able to hold their attention on the job, as opposed to when the mind is agitated. And the resilience of an individual is not how they perform when everything is going well. The resilience of an individual is how can they perform when things are going bad. A top athlete, you can be a top athlete when everything is going fine, but that's, that's not what really sets somebody apart. What sets somebody apart is when the team is losing, when they're losing at the event, who's the individual who rises to the surface to take leadership here? In a corporate world, when things are going badly, who's the guy who is able to come up with the ideas and able to carry them through? Like I work with sometimes military personnel, special weapons and tactics, for example, we've had some of their members do this. And these guys are sent into stressful situations. Now, yes, of course, the corporate world is stressful, but nobody will die. They're sent into stressful situations. And if their stress is too high, we are more likely to make mistakes. And if we make a mistake, if they make a mistake, somebody could die as a result of it. So they have to have the utmost physical performance. And that's why we do the oxygen advantage, utmost sleep, utmost clarity of the mind, focus, concentration. They are all intertwined. So I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but I'm going to bring it back to the breath in terms of preparing for presentations. Start focusing on your breathing during your everyday life. This isn't something for a bunch of hippies with open sandals and tree huggers. This is for the elite of the elite because this is giving you the ability to hold your attention, concentration, and focus. It's not just about looking at the psychology of breathing. We also need to look at the physiology of it. Slow down your breath, activate your diaphragm. Don't force your breathing into place. And the other thing about doing the exercises, say the breathe light exercise from the oxygen advantage is that when you're slowing down the breath to have air hunger, your mind is more anchored onto the breath. If, for example, we just follow the airflow coming in and out of the nose, yes, of course, it's normal for the mind to wander. But if we have focusing of the airflow in and out of the nose and we're slowing down the breath with the deliberate intent of creating air hunger, the mind is anchored to the breath. Here we are training the brain. It's not just about the psychology of breathing. Mindfulness is not enough. When mindfulness was developed, it was developed back two and a half thousand years ago. Life has moved on now. Times are different. And the environment is different. 
just focusing on the breath isn't enough. We also have to address the biomechanics and the, the biochemistry of breathing. And we can do that by bringing breathing from the, from the mouth to the nose, from the nose to the diaphragm, from fast breathing to slow breathing. And generally, the breath at rest should be imperceptible. Look at the breathing of your colleagues who are prone to anxiety and stress. They come into the room. They're getting frustrated. They sigh more. You notice their breathing patterns. They have the mouth open. That's not a good sign. But here's the thing. It's easy to change this. I changed it. My breathing patterns were dreadful. And I knew something was not quite right. And sometimes when you're waking up feeling exhausted all the time, you kind of just go with it. That's the way it is. And that's the way it always has been. But when you start changing your breathing and you start feeling different within a few days, it really tells you something is in this. So where's the truth as regards breathing? No animal. We've got two dogs and we've got different animals around the place. No animal is intentionally going around with their mouth open, hard breathing. The animal, even the dog on a cold day will have its mouth closed and a very hot day to regulate body temperature, the mouth is open but only for a short period of time. The, mouth, the dogs are sleeping with their mouths closed. You know, so we can learn a lot from our ancestors, but also from the animal world. Now, pre-presentation, what do I do? Before an event, I usually, I don't make contact with anybody. You know, if I'm going to a room to speak to, say, three, 400 people, I don't want to talk to anybody before that event. I'm a total introvert. Yes, I talk for a living, but I love my own space. I don't even go into the room. I don't sit in and listen to other speakers before. On the day that I'm talking, I don't want to hear any other speaker. I want to conserve all my energy. Um, because if I go in there, I'll end up talking and I'm losing energy. So be very careful that you conserve your energy before the event. And even working with singers, I say the same. Turn up to the concert, but don't talk to anybody. Hide, conserve your energy. Bring your attention inwards. I usually close my eyes and I focus my attention on my breathing and I will spend at least a half an hour slowing down my breath. Now I'm very relaxed and I'm focused and the mind is focused, but maybe I'm too relaxed. So after that, I do about five to six strong breath holds because strong breath holds will increase blood flow to the brain. Now it puts me into more, you know, I want to be stressed, but I don't want to be too stressed. I don't want to be too relaxed because then it's not going to, I want to be in the present moment. I want to be there that the words just come intuitively, you know, in a flow, not worried about distractions. I want to be in that space almost that everything is moving simultaneously, almost that it's in slow motion, that I don't have to think that it just happens. And that's when you're probably people talk about the zone or the flow and it's harnessing that state of mind. And this can be recreated at will. Sports psychologists Maybe they have a hard time. How do you get an athlete? How do you get a corporate professional to enter the zone at will? You don't enter the zone by simply practicing the day of the race. You enter the zone by practicing on the weeks and months and by bringing it into your way of life. That way, you're developing, if I call, you know, you're tapping into that part of the brain. You're developing that part of the brain that when the presentation is about to happen, you can instantly bring your attention there. So to assist with that, I do relaxation for about a half an hour. After that, I do five strong breath holds, and then I go out and speak. But just before I go out and speak, I flood my body with energy. 
I simply take all of my attention out of the head and I bring a wave of energy throughout the body. And I'm walking out not just as a head. I want to speak with every cell of my body. I don't want to be just stuck in my head. You know, being stuck in the head is when you miss everything that's going on around you because all of your attention is in the head. And that's, that's what I do. But you could even say it starts the night before or sleep. I try not to look into blue light technology, even though now smart TVs have blue light technology. You know, if we're looking into our mobile phone, if we're looking into our laptop, television screens, it's almost that the brain is sensing that it's daylight outside. So the production of melatonin is, is decreasing. The hotel room, I want to have total darkness. So I'll even get up. You know, if I see that the, the blue or the red light underneath the television, I'll put tape over that. The digital clock that's on the lamp set on the table, I'll turn it over. So I want total darkness, total silence, and I want an airy bedroom. I'll also practice slowing down my breathing for about 15, 20 minutes before sleep because what that will do is activate the relaxation response. I wear paper tape across my lips. Now, we've been advocating this for 20 years. This is not my tape, by the way. I use a tape called lip seal tape. I'll just show it to you. And I know this is going to sound bizarre to your listeners. The best night's sleep that I ever had was wearing paper tape. And it's simply like this. It's a piece of paper tape. And that keeps my lips together. And I wake up and I feel alert when I wake up. That's when, you know, so in presentation, we have to look at the sleep the night before. We have to look at our everyday breathing. And we have to look at our breathing and state of mind before the event. And, you know, the other thing is, don't care what happens. If we place too much self-doubt and self-criticism, and I suppose the best way to think about it is, is you're not thinking about it is practice, if you're giving a public presentation, make sure that you rehearse this many, many times, not necessarily in your mind, but go into an empty room and go into an empty room, maybe with a whiteboard and talk to a camera. You know, even if it's just there, at least be talking to somebody, talking to something, because that's your opportunity to relay the information, to keep practicing the information, to make yourself comfortable with the information. So I was giving a TED talk and the TED talk is quite unique in that you can't make mistakes. Um, in the preparation of it, you, at first you submit about, I think, two minutes of a talk and they go through that. And if, you're, if, if they like what, what it is, they'll bring you on. And I think then I, I had to submit six minutes and then I had to submit 17 minutes of unedited, but without a mistake. Now that takes quite a bit of practice because what they're trying to do is that when you get up on stage, that you can talk consistently for 17 minutes without a mistake. You don't do that without doing a lot of practice. And as some, some guy mentioned, I don't know who it was, maybe your listeners will know, I had a 15-minute talk, but I spent all day practicing it. You know, and that's what it's about. Because I think it's the practicing of it that makes you feel comfortable. And also, if you have your homework done and research done, even when people knock you, if you know your research inside out, you're going to feel so comfortable that you'll be able to, to offer rebuttals. So, so there's a number of things to do it. But yeah, the breathing aspect is huge too. I want to pick your brain on one more because it comes up in the book, uh, Erythropoietin, specifically Tour de France. It, it's very famous because of Mr. Armstrong. But we can, I guess, increase EPO naturally, right? Yes. Uh, a lot of the, the studies came from Mid-Sweden University. 
you know, just researchers, Matt, Matt Richardson is one. There's another woman called Erica Shagate. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her word, there, her name there. And there's others. And basically, if you do, a, just to give you an example, if you do five strong breath holds, and if you do three sets of five strong breath holds with each set separated by 10 minutes of rest, that increases erythropoietin, EPO, by 24%. So basically, we're doing a strong breath hold to lower blood oxygen saturation. So the kidneys become hypoxic and the liver um, and the brain, as a result, generate or synthesize the hormone erythropoietin. Patrick, real quick, just to define breath hold here, it's on the exhale? Yeah, but first of all, don't do it if you're pregnant. <laughs> um, don't do it if you have any cardiovascular issues. So you have to be, just from a health point of view, we want somebody who is fairly healthy. Now, so we take a normal breath in. Usually, we'll always, I always work with pulse oximetries when I have the athletes. I want to lower their blood oxygen saturation down to 85%, um, but I don't want it to go below 60% because then there's a risk of fainting, passing out. So I don't want risk. So with the exercise, and this will also open up your nose, by the way, and this is what I do just pre-presentation. Take a normal breath in through your nose, normal breath out through your nose, pinch your nose, hold your nose, start walking. And then as the air hunger gets a bit stronger, so you could do it on the spot. So you're walking on the spot and then you start jogging or fast walking and jogging and keep going, keep relaxing into the body. You'll feel the involuntary contractions of the breathing muscles. You'll feel the throat breathing muscles contracting as well. And when the air, air hunger is pretty strong, let go, but breathe in through your nose. Your purpose then is to wait for about 20 to 30 seconds. And with that, we have minimal breathing for about 15 to 20 seconds to purposely drop the SpO2. So if we drop down to below 91%, it's hypoxic. And if you go, and hypoxia means that there's inadequate oxygen at tissue level. If we go below 88%, you're going into severe hypoxia. So 85% is what we look to achieve because there you were achieving severe hypoxia, but no risk. And if you do five of those breath holds, separated by 10 minutes, and then you do another five, 10 minutes and another five, that's equivalent to spending six hours in an altitude of 17, 1,780 meters. So that increases erythropoietin by 24%. Now, another thing that's happening is that your spleen contracts when you do a strong breath hold, five repetitions, your spleen, which is an organ located underneath the diaphragm, that contracts to release red blood cells into circulation. And the increase of the red blood cells lasts for 60 minutes. So we would have athletes do, we have athletes do the same pre-match preparation as I spoke about if you were giving a presentation to, to corporate audience. Because I want the athletes to do five or six strong breath holds before the game to cause the spleen to release these red blood cells into circulation to increase their aerobic capacity. But also with athletes, we have them do breath holding as part of their training, nasal breathing during their running, you know, not always 100% nasal breathing. You know, if it's an elite athlete, we'll switch from nasal to mouth breathing. Like yesterday, I was working with a professional boxer and I was talking about how do you warm up? Well, I warm up this. Well, I said, I'm switching everything to during your warm up, during your cool down period, all in and out through your nose because your nose is linked with the diaphragm and also your oxygen uptake and CO2 is better. It just doesn't make sense to do physical exercise hard and fast breathing. So yeah, so these are things that we do with athletes. We look at two pillars to it with the oxygen advantage. One is functional breathing training to improve breathing efficiency. And the other is simulation of altitude training to lower blood oxygen saturation. Question for you, because you mentioned hypoxic, but also um, 
measuring with a pulse pulse oximeter could you do that now there's devices where you can actually measure the uh, oxygen saturation in your muscle is it worth looking at that as well or is the pulse oximeter still the gold standard no it's if you're looking at near infrared spectroscopy in terms of looking at the, the oxygen that's very useful if you can see it inside in the muscle compartment because if you can create a hypoxic environment inside in the muscle you should be able to improve the buffering capacity inside the muscle. And your buffering capacity is, you know, you, an increased buffer, it will reversibly bind with, with an acid, say hydrogen ion. So for instance, if an athlete is really working hard and they're going anaerobically, if they've got a good buffering capacity, the hydrogen ion that's coming from the tissue is buffered. So it will delay lactic acid, the onset of lactic acid and fatigue. So I think it's very useful if you can measure it, I didn't realize it can be simply done because even looking at it, you're trying to isolate what muscle compartments are you looking at. Um, and traditionally, it was near-infrared spectroscopy. So if it can be done, um, you'll have to let me know because I'd be interested in finding out more. There's this device called the Humon, and though I have yet to try it myself, they claim to be able to measure SpO2 off the leg um, and directly in your muscle. So that would be, I'm, I would be curious what you think of that device when you have a chance to look at it. Well, I think it would be super um, because it would be really, you know, if you can increase buffering capacity and if you can show it. Now, studies do show that, but it's, it's difficult to say exactly because, you know, research by Warren's coming out of, of France is saying that we probably are by doing, because they do similar exercises what we've been doing. And we've been doing these exhale hold techniques since 2002. So the research in the last 10 years coming out shows that definitely there seems to be a drop the blood oxygen saturation in the muscle, increasing the buffering capacity. So a few minutes ago, we spoke about EPO and erythropoietin and splenic contraction. That's increasing aerobic capacity because you're increasing additional red blood cells. That in turn increases VO2 max, et cetera. But if you can also increase your anaerobic capacity, in that you can, you can improve the buffering capacity before you go, you know, to delay lactic acid. That's huge because now we're able to tap into different sports, which I think the research anyway is pointing to that. Amazing. A question from a listener came in, Patrick, and it was if they are exhaling too much CO2. So yes. is that hypocapnia or hyper? Yeah, hypocapnia, right. yes. And so if they're hypocapnic... Uh, other than getting a capnography machine and they were they follow the oxygen advantage protocol what's a good way for them to measure the success of of what they're doing is it the bolt score or is it something bolt score okay yeah bolt score will the bolt score doesn't tell you the co2 in the blood but it tells you the ventilatory response to carbon dioxide carbon dioxide the gas itself fluctuates in the blood you know so that's why it can be difficult to pinpoint exactly what is it in the blood. And um, we, don't, we don't use capnography because when I'm working with a student or a client, I want to be able to impart everything to that individual so that when they go home, they can do it. Whereas if I'm using capnography here, you know, what do they do then when they get home? So I'd be using, following the, you know, having that person measure their bolt score, especially first thing in the morning, but pay attention to their breath. You know, what is good breathing? Good breathing is in and out through the nose. It's slow. It's driven by the diaphragm. It's effortless. Breathing should always be effortless. And there's a natural pause after exhalation. 
So if your bolt score is 30 to 40 seconds, the natural pause after exhalation will be about two, three seconds. Final question before we get into the rapid fire. And Patrick, this has been absolutely amazing. There's other breathing techniques that have gained quite a lot of, I, I guess, popularity recently. The one I think of is Wim Hof. And that appears to be much about oxygen saturation. Whereas what we're talking about with the oxygen advantage is sort of utilizing carbon dioxide, if I have that right. Okay, I'll explain the difference between the two. Um, the Wim Hof technique, if you do 30 hard breaths, you don't increase the SpO2. You're not going to increase the proportion of hemoglobin occupied by oxygen. What you will increase is the PO2. And the PO2 is the amount of O2 that's in the, in the lungs that are, is transferring into the blood. So in simple terms, 98% of your oxygen is carried by hemoglobin. That's your SpO2. 2% of your oxygen is dissolved directly in the blood. That's influenced by your PO2. When you do the Wim Hof technique and you're, in, you're breathing hard for 30 breaths, you won't increase the SpO2, which is the main carrier of oxygen, 98%. You will increase the amount of oxygen dissolved in the blood, which is your 2%. So that's the first thing. The second thing is 30, 30 hard breaths will drop CO2 in the blood hugely, probably by at least half. And every one millimeter drop of CO2 will reduce blood flow to the brain by 2%. So we would expect that you would have a reduction of blood flow to the brain as a result of hyperventilation, probably in the region of 40 to 50% there. If we look at the change to blood pH, by the third cycle of the Wim Hof method, the blood acid-base balance has changed from 7.365 up to 7.75. Cells die when it reaches 7.8. So what's happening with the Wim Hof technique? It's hypoxic, hypocapnic. They are able to, by practicing it, if you breathe hard for 30 breaths, you get rid of so much carbon dioxide that this will allow you to hold your breath for a lot longer because the stimulus to breathe is CO2. And this is why it would be very dangerous to do in water. Because if, say for instance, if you have a swimmer and the swimmer traditionally hyperventilates and then they enter the water, well, if they get rid of carbon dioxide, they don't feel that they need to breathe because their alarm to breathe has been depleted because they've blown off too much CO2. But they stay underwater, and as a result, their oxygen levels drop, and they pass out underwater, and it's called underwater blackout, and they drown. And people do drown as a result of it. I think it's a very interesting technique, the Wim Hof technique. I think it primarily is a result of a stressor, that it's antagonizing the body's immune system to force the body's immune system to make adaptations to better be able to cope with, say, for instance, autoimmune diseases, etc. There's a few things that are common with it. We, you know, we're dropping the blood oxygen saturation down to 85%. That's severe. If you talk to any medical doctor, that's severe hypoxia. Wim Hof technique, people are dropping it down to 50, 50, 60%, maybe down to even 40%. That's beyond Mount Everest. That's extreme to the extreme. I don't think it's for everybody. I don't think everybody should be doing it. I think certainly um, a very healthy and fit athlete who is doing it short term, I wouldn't see an issue with it. But the, the individuals that I'm working with, I'm working with all kinds, and I don't think they will have the resilience to cope with it. So I think it should be more selective. The technique is very interesting. And also I think we need to look at more than just the hyperventilation of breath holding. Functional breathing and your everyday breathing is vitally important. How are the individuals breathing during rest? How are the individuals breathing during sleep? 
and how is their everyday breathing pattern. So that's why when I'm looking at breathing, I want to be looking at functional breathing patterns as well as breath holding. But I have to say about the Vilhoff technique, he, they have done a tremendous job in getting it out there, in shedding awareness to the possibilities that can be undertaken by the breath. And we have more similarities than, than not. Thank you for sharing that. Patrick, before we get into the final questions, I just want to say thank you for all of your work. I, it's not often that I read a book on performance, and I, I classify Oxygen Advantage in that more than once, and I continue to go back to it as a reference tool. So Great. Thanks very much, Boomer. Thank you so much. <laughs> that's, for, for That's what it's all about. Thank you. For me anyway, that's, that's music to my ears. So I want to transition now into final four questions, and you can kind of think of these as rapid fire. And this one, I would, the first one I would encourage you, just something other than breath, but what would you think is the one area where people should pay more attention to when looking to improve performance? I know you're biased with breath, so. I think we, have to be, we should be very selective of our time. We're, we're living in a, in a day, in, in an age that we're constantly distracted. I think, you know, when I'm looking at youngsters coming in and when I'm talking about youngsters, I'm in my mid 40s. So anybody under 30 to me is now is very young. Um, how often are they distracted and how often are they utilizing mobile phone? And, you know, it's almost like it's an, ad, an addiction. If you're using and looking at your mobile phone 40 or 50 times a day, it's a total waste of time. You know, you're, it's you're looking at it out of habit. It's great for Facebook. And you have to look at this, the, I was going to use the sinister of Facebook, but I'm not going to use that word, even though I've used it. Look at the motives of Facebook. Look at it from a corporate point of view. If I can get more visitors to the website and hold them there, the share price increases. So the whole thing about Facebook was, how do you get more people going onto the website, but how more importantly do you hold them there? And it's also from a psychological point of view, almost that the like button is addictive. But the like button is, forcing you to compete against other people, but also for you to compete against yourself. So in terms of performance, especially for the youngsters coming up, technological progress is good, but be very careful about it. You need mental health. You need good mental health. You need focus of the mind. You need agitation of the, no, sorry, you need to be able to control agitation of the mind. Really watch this social media technology. If you're not using it from a business point of view, I would say get rid of your personal accounts and, you know, start bringing your attention inwards. So that would be one thing I would say about performance. And that's coming back to be selective about your time. What's your personal top trick for enhancing your focus? Well, I think there's very few <laughs> top tricks other than following on the breath. Um, another aspect will be bringing your attention into the present moment. And another would be to, to bring your attention into the inner body. But all, all three are intertwined. You know, bring the attention into the present moment is about having your attention ultimately here and now, not to be worried about the past, not to be constantly jumping into the future. You know, I live in a lovely part of the country in the west coast of Ireland. And if I go out there, I want to see it. I'm not going out there to think about problems or even to plan. There's a time for planning, but then there's a time to enjoy life. And if we're constantly stuck in our head, all we're doing is missing out on everything that's around us. You know, our, it's not about having all of your attention in your head. You have to get out of your head and you have to merge with life around you. People die at 75, 80 years of age. Well, they've probably died at four or five years of age once they got locked into the chatter of the mind because 
they've become stuck in their head and they've missed out on many things that life has to offer, except for a few brief interspersions that they brought their attention into the present moment. Let's bring our attention into the present moment. That's focus. Well said. Um, what is a book that has impacted your life in a way that it helps you or it's caused you to show up differently in your life in terms of how you perform in it? Um, one of the more instrumental books in my life was The Power of Now by Edgar Tolley. I came across that in 1999. Um, back then, you know, I, I read it. I recorded it onto an old cassette player. When I was driving around, I used to put the cassette into the car and play the book over and over and over. It's a tremendous book. Um, a book that I've read more recently is Tuesdays with Mari by Mitch Album. I think it's a tremendous book. And it's a tremendous book about the balance of life. And it's something that, you know, I'm not probably doing so well because I've so much travel and you're trying to balance the corporate world with family life, with this, that, and the other. One thing that I would say is that what I definitely do is, as a result of, say, Mitch Album's book, is when I get home, I don't be on laptop. Um, I'm not on phone. I'm there with family. Many corporate people, and this also is a apply by the corporate world. Social, with, with mobile phones, you're always contactable. An employee shouldn't have to answer mobile phones, emails, once they reach home. It, this is not about the corporation um, owning the employee. This is, is about the employee giving its time to the corporation, but the employee, and I'm talking about the CEO here, also having the time to deal and to to have a relationship with family. So, you know, that's also, I suppose, being selective about your time. But Mitch Album's book is really nice because the, it just rang with truth. It just felt right. And it's the wisdom of a 70 or 75-year-old man that's only got a short time to live. And he's, an, he's a very intelligent man. So the wisdom he imparts, um, it's good information when you, to get when you're about 45 years of age. Patrick, this has been absolutely amazing. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, there's a website, oxygenadvantage.com. And my book is in Dutch. It's in 14 languages. It's just gone into Chinese. And it's in all of the major languages. I'm not sure how international your listeners are. Um, we've got YouTube channels as well. There's some video demonstrations. There's a TED Talk looking kind of health. So different channels, yeah. And, you know, join us like join us on Facebook. We have Facebook groups, etc. Patrick, thank you so much for the time today. This has been absolutely brilliant. Uh, the for all those listening, the show notes for this one will be at decodingsuperhuman.com slash oxygen advantage. Patrick, I'm eternally grateful for your time. This is amazing. Great, great stuff. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Boomer. To all the superhumans listening out there, have an absolutely epic day. Superhumans, before you go, two asks from me. Number one, if you can head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and just give us a five-star rating, it really helps get the word out. Number two, if you can give us a little feedback, send us an email at podcast at decodingsuperhuman.com. Those of you that have actually taken advantage of this know that I read and respond to each one. Thank you so much for listening and have an absolutely epic day.